0: Welcome back to the Athletes for Justice podcast. On this episode, we sit down with a friend of mine named Bozier. This man spent the last 27 years of his life in prison. Seven of those years in solitary confinement. And we get a chance to sit and talk with him and ask him about what justice means to him. So I really, really think you're going to love this episode. Make sure once again to like to subscribe and to share this with your friends let me know what you think about this podcast and thank you for joining us on this journey of justice together so bozier what's up (laughs) (laughs) man bro it's good to see you i ain't gonna lie it's so good to see you man
1: you know, it's good to be seen under these circumstances.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um you spent the last twenty-seven years? Twenty-seven. Uh in prison.
1: Yes, I did.
0: Incarcerated. When you hear words like criminal justice reform, what do those words do for you or mean to you?
1: Um, Theoretically, I understand what those words should mean and what they're meant to mean, but in practicality, they don't mean what they imply. When you think about criminal justice reform, you think about a complete overhaul of the criminal justice system, whereas True reform, true reform looks like a second chance and an opportunity for everyone who's incarcerated, nonviolent versus violent offenders. Prison reform in our country and our culture just simply means just an attempt to do something to address the issue, but not necessarily solve a problem. So reform typically looks like nonviolent drug offenders. You know, that's like this recycling uh, reform that you constantly see, but but the prison system still busting at the seams. You know, United States leads the world in incarceration, but yet we're constantly working toward reform, but we're not necessarily actually reforming the prison system because we're dealing, we're not dealing with, to me, reforms mean redemption. It means forgiveness. It means a second chance to all prisons across the world are full of guys who have committed crimes, who understand the magnitude of, of what they've done, who work tirelessly to rehabilitate themselves, but yet will never be afforded the opportunity of a second chance because reform doesn't necessarily mean that they will ever benefit from reform. So I hear the word reform and you know my prayer is that and someday we can see real reform. where We can really start addressing the issue of you no know, redemption, uh, of forgiveness, a second chance where we can start giving these guys who are deserving an opportunity uh, a second chance at, at life and not just address the surface of the reform. And then say, OK, we'll put it we'll put it we'll put it back off again until next year. And then we're making another you know, lackluster attempt to reform the system. You know, I want to see real reform. And I think the only way that could happen is that uh, we'd look at it from, you know, an all-encompassing perspective.
0: I was talking with a young girl named Nazari, a 16-year-old sophomore, a young Black girl. on the. She lives on the west side of Chicago. And we asked her, what is justice? And her response was similar to yours. She said, justice to me is a second chance. A second chance. What is justice for you?
1: Again, theoretically, justice is this uh, concept more righteousness that's based on you know ethics and equality and fairness. So we throw the word around justice, but you know practically, we don't necessarily see it. You know, and it just seems as if justice is more about proximity than anything else. You know, uh, when you think about retributive justice, you know, that's kind of where our society has always gone, it's like revenge. We're just gonna lock them up, we're gonna throw away the key. You know, we're gonna disenfranchise this group of people and so on and so forth. And, uh, but those are always the people who had these concepts but not necessarily affected by the problem. So then the people who are affected by the problem, their perspective of justice is more restorative. They say, hey, can we, Fix this problem mutually? Can we come have a conversation where I could admit what I did and you can admit what you did and then we can, you know, develop a relationship and create some dialogue where we can actually see change? So, justice for me is that I would just like to see everyone, like the young lady said, get a, a real opportunity, a second chance, or just be afforded the luxury of uh, a second chance.
0: You spent. The last twenty-seven years, uh, up until what December? December.
1: No. December eleventh,
0: twenty twenty. And that's the day that you left prison.
1: That's the day that I left prison.
0: And the day you got in was
1: uh, July first, nineteen ninety-three.
0: On July second or third, like that first week take us take us back to that first week
1: uh, it was It was emotionally catastrophic uh the next morning when I woke up and I realized the magnitude of what I had done and basically what was in store. You know, uh, I went to jail, let's say on a Thursday, on a Friday, the district attorney sent me a, um, a letter saying that they were seeking to, uh, they're seeking a death penalty. So just in a matter of 24 hours, you know, I went from living to taking a life to possibly have mine taken. So I just had a spiral of emotion, um, emotions and numbness, you know, uh, And I tried to sleep as much as I could, think that I could just sleep the reality of the situation away. But every time I woke up, I know I was right back there again, you know, faced to confront it. Uh, But it was it was it was trying times. Again, I was was a teenager. I was young. I was immature. I was inexperienced. It was my first time ever being in trouble. So it was all everything was new. The whole environment, jail, you know, uh, the concept of the criminal justice system, all this stuff was new to me. So you can just imagine how immature kid was, you know, kind of digested stuff. And it, it was, it was extremely, extremely hard for me as I kind of think back uh, during my early years of my incarceration.
0: What was a a, a a typical day like early on, right? So you were, you you spent time, you were at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, which at that time was the most dangerous prison in the world, if I'm not mistaken. I know reform either had started or was coming, but at that time, Angola, as they call it, was the most dangerous prison in the world. And please correct me if, I, if that's not a- accurate. Um,
1: yeah, Angola had the, the uh, name as being the bloodiest prison in the nation. Uh, I think that when I came to prison, I was on the remnants of being the bloodiest prison. It was still a dangerous prison, but it no longer was the bloodiest prison, uh, in the nation. So, uh, again, I, I came young, naive, inexperienced, and it was more about self-preservation than anything else. This was a new environment. You know, I was young, um, again, inexperienced, didn't know really what to expect, very, reluctant to uh, engage in relationships, not understanding what this meant. Was this just some opportunity that somebody was trying to take to come into my world for the purpose of trying to take advantage of me, Were they trying to get over on me, they, you know? So I was just, you know, skeptical about everybody around me. And it took me a while to kind of adjust and get comfortable, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, immerse myself in an environment where I could, you know, began to start living a healthy life, for lack of better words, a healthy life in prison. It wasn't, you know, what how I ended is not, obviously not how I started. You know, I was, uh, I think that I became aggressive early on in my incarceration out of survival. And I did a lot of things predicated on, I felt like this is what I needed to do in order to prove myself. Not that I wanted to do it, but if I felt like, hey, if I need to, you know, get in an altercation with this brother to make a statement to everybody else, then so be it. So early on in my incarceration, I made a lot of, a lot of bad decisions. Um, and those, descendants obviously were, uh, predicated on, you know, survival. So, uh, I had this you no know, concept. It was them or me. And whatever that meant, you know, in that moment, then that's what it meant. And I remember, um, I stabbed a guy in 1998 and I stabbed him like 11 times, punctured both his lungs and they sent him uh, to the hospital on the street because his wounds were so severe that they couldn't treat him in, you know, the prison. And this was all behind a gambling debt, a gambling debt and the guy decided he wasn't going to pay me. So it's like, if I allow you to get away with this, then who else going to try to to get over? You know, and again, out of immature that uh, me and a guy had an altercation. We made it known that when we did see each other that, you know, what it was going to be. And uh, I felt that he would have attempted to try to harm me. So I just kind of struck first. And I remember sitting in uh, the dungeon, what we call it, in administrative lockdown, thinking, man, look how my life spiraling downhill. You know, first I'm in prison. Or you know, taking a life unjustifiably, unwarranted, and him in prison possibly faced with another situation where life may be taken. And uh, I remember praying, and I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I remember praying to God, like, man, you gotta let this guy be. <laughs> Please don't let him die. And I remember when I was in the emergency room, uh, when they took me to get treated for the wounds that I had. And um, the lady asked me, she said, how much time do you have? And I said, I have life. So she said, well, you might as well add another life to that because that man just died. And I can't explain to you how emotionally broke down I was just hearing that. And I said it out loud. I didn't intend to say it, but I, I don't know where it came from. I just said to myself, you know, I didn't say to myself, it came out loud like, man, what my mom going to think. So when I said that, she the lady just jumped out and like, you know, your mama, your mama, what about his mama? what about his mama? So she just lit into me and I just again sat there numb, shaking my head like, man, what's become of my life? What, what has become of me? Where have I taken myself to? And uh, I, I remember going to um, administrative lockdown. I stayed there for about six or seven years in a one man cell by myself. In A, so
0: a one man cell.
1: One man cell for six, six or seven years by myself. Uh, with a one-hour recreation time a day, uh, sale six by nine by the size of your closet. So imagine being there for you know seven years. But it was, if I think back over my twenty-seven years, that was probably the most impactful seven years of my life. It started out gloomy because again, I was adjusting to a whole new situation. First, I went from adjusting to prison. Adjusting the prison population, now I'm have to adjust to isolation, being by myself, you know, so imagine all the spiral emotions that I had tried to understand and you know uh and so on and so forth, but it was in that cell that I met Christ, it was in that cell that i I gave my life to God, and it was in that cell where my life changed and transformed.
0: How, like, if you're 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 by yourself, twenty three out of twenty four hours a day for seven years, how did you or could you meet Christ there?
1: Because I was broken, you know. I just I didn't have anywhere else to turn, and I remember you know seeing a Bible on my um, on my sink. So periodically, I would pick the Bible up and I would read it you know, and the inmate ministers would come by and they would talk to them. I mean, I would hear them, you know, talking about God. And I, at that time, you know, I was, I thought I was the smartest person in the world. So I challenged everything from a scientist, a scientific perspective, you know, they was coming from faith and I was coming from science and we just could never, you know, <laughs> we never could come, you know, find common ground. But I remember one day just out of state of brokenness and I was like, Lord, if you are who you say you are, if you are who they say you are, then I wanted to get to know you, you know, and I just I gave my life to him, and uh, I remember waking up the next morning thinking that something was going to change, and nothing changed. <laughs> and I was
0: like, What do you think? Really real? What you think was going to change after? I you- don't
1: know. I don't know. I had the slightest idea. I just felt like that everyone would see me differently, that administration would come in and say, okay, you didn't serve enough time in administrative lockdown. You can go now. You a changed person. I know you didn't get your life to Christ. I really believe it. You know, so this is what I was thinking. And ultimately, I ended up staying like three years later, (laughs) three more years. And I think that that was God's way of showing me that, hey, you know, can't make a deal with me and just think that you can give your life to me this needs to be a real transformation i need you to really walk this thing out i need you to develop a relationship with me and that's what happened hmm.
0: did you do you remember what day that was
1: no i don't i don't
0: but but the moment after that moment you said you expected something to change nothing changed but did anything change inside of you or a perspective.
1: Indeed, I, I felt like the weight of the world was lifted off me in that moment. And I think it was that feeling that made me think in the morning that things would be different. But when I realized things weren't different, I wasn't upset. Um, I just kind of respected the process and I continued to read. And I continued to listen, and I was more receptive as the guys, the ministers came around. Because, mind you, I was, I was still young. I didn't know. I read, but I still didn't have a a good understanding of, of who Christ was. So now this is about me walking out on faith, you know. And so I, I became more receptive to what the MA ministers had to say, you know. I uh, became more receptive to what the Word was saying as I read it. And I think God began to kind of reveal itself to me more and more every day, more Relationship became more intimate, so now it was about okay, uh, this guy that they talk about, he really real, you know. So I said, you know, I'm all in at this point, regardless of what happened, because we got this you know concept that people have about jailhouse religion, and I'm not saying that jailhouse religion is not a a real you know perspective or lack of a better word, theology that a lot of guys have. We make this bargain and that, you know, in the midst of this oppression, I'm gonna give my life to God and. And the moment the oppression is no longer there, then I kind of gradually go back to everyday life. It's real. It happens in jail. But guess what? It happens in society as well. But it's labeled jailhouse religion. And I always said, I said, you know, I don't want this to be no jailhouse religion. I want this to really be a real relationship. So at that point, I just became committed to developing a relationship We got Again, it took three years for me to eventually get out of cell. But once I got out, I knew that I would never look back and I never looked back.
0: So when you got out after seven, seven plus years, when you got out of administrative lockdown, what did you step into?
1: Actually, I stepped into a new prison. It it was crazy because the culture of the prison had completely changed compared to when I went in seven years prior. So I get back out and, you know, they're building a seminary. You know, and they got all these faith, they got a new education building and they got all these faith based classes and so on and so forth. The, uh, The guys were pursuing, you know, education more because, mind you, this is in the mid 90s where this is Angola, the incarceration capital of the world, Louisiana. That was not as if anyone had incentive to do anything right because to get out because nobody ever got out. It was like a Roche Motel, one way in, you know, one way out. So uh, everything that I saw around me, i seen guys just doing it for the sake of becoming better men and not because it was an incentive in doing what, what was being done. So when I saw that, that was like right up my alley. i was like, OK, this is where this is the prison I would have wanted to come to, you know, eight years prior where the atmosphere was more conducive to learn and grow. It wasn't as volatile and so on and so forth. So when I saw that, I just, I just dove in and I was like, all right, God, use me. You know, and everything that I felt was productive, I got involved in. it.
0: You said you had two life sentences.
1: No, I had one life sentence.
0: Okay, you had one life sentence.
1: If that guy would have died, I would have had two life sentences. He didn't die, obviously. Hmm.
0: So you had, so you had one life sentence. Yet you are here today, no longer in a in a prison. Mm. Did you think you were going to die there? And was there a part of you? that said, okay, I deserve it.
1: Absolutely. To answer the question, both questions, yes. Again, I felt I deserved it because I took a life. Um. I felt that I there was always the possibility that I could die in prison. But here's the crazy thing. Although I knew it was always a reality that I could die in prison and I've seen so many of my friends die in prison that I can't explain it to you, Sam, but I knew some kind of way that I wasn't going to die in prison. Does that mean I believe that every day? No. But I knew that I wouldn't die in prison because I just always felt like, you know, God had a calling on my life because... All these extraordinary things was happening and I was getting involved in and I was building curriculums and creating things that more guys were benefiting from and so on and so forth. And I was like, I feel like God is really using me in an awesome way within the contents of this facility. And I'm like, but I know it it just has to be something bigger that he got planned for me. And what that thing is, I don't know. Hmm. So although I felt that I would die in prison, it was something in my inner soul it always told me that I wouldn't die, prison. You talk about... I felt I deserved to die based on my actions. Hmm.
0: When I met you in 2016, 16 or 17, went to Angola and I write about this in my book and let the world see you what I saw in that prison were men who were were changed. Like I saw real men, men who kept each other accountable, men who loved one another, men who were leaders, men who accepted responsibility, men who were spiritually strong, men who, a lot of men who were following Jesus, a lot of men who were building curriculums with degrees. And I was thoroughly impressed. But as I was leaving with this thought of like, wow, this is great. These guys are awesome. I remember, I think you and I maybe spoke and you were saying this is still a reality, like we still have to go back to prison. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about the reality of that weight, knowing you've started curriculums, you've gotten degrees, been to seminary, you've been rehabilitated, changed, um, reformed, whatever you want to say, like you are a new person. Yet that was still a reality. Because for me, when I think about rehabilitation, I would say, yes, I didn't know him before, but that's what a man is supposed to look like. I know what a real man is supposed to look like and that's what a real man is supposed to look like, but yet there was still some reality of, it seems like, will things ever change?
1: yeah man it's um uh, it's a debilitating feeling to wake up every morning with uncertainty of not knowing what tomorrow is gonna hold for you um it's very you know depressing for a lot of guys to know that they're doing everything right that um they truly have changed that their rehabilitated body of work you know is not necessarily um, impressive to the point where people can marvel at it, but it's like, this is who I really am now. This is who I became. And just the uncertainty of knowing none of that matters at the end of the day is, is you know, is heartbreaking. And, you know, people come there and go all the time and they're like, wow, the same experience you had and what you saw is what we heard, you know, for years when people would just be in awe at you know, how communal the society was. And as you said, how we held each other accountable and just all the productive things, you know, guys graduating from seminary, getting, you know, bachelor's and master's degrees and they see all the program and all the vocational things that guys are involved in. So people in the are like, wow, again, this is what rehabilitation should look like. And this is what real men should look like. But, the truth of the matter is that again, Louisiana is the incarceration capital of the world, and it's, we would always you know be disappointed at how everybody could come in and see our worth and our value, but you know, the state didn't. The people you know around us, the, the policy makers, and the people who really made a difference, you know, to them we were just still the same person who we were you know prior to the transformation. So that was hard, but I think that when you make a commitment to change, then that's just who you are. That's who you become. So we you get discouraged, you get frustrated, but understand that being discouraged and frustrated is not going to change the situation. You just continue to press on. You continue to persevere. You continue to uh, develop, you know, faith and hope in whatever it is, whether it's in, you know, The system and one day things may change whether it's in your relationship with you know with Christ but you just start believing in something bigger than you and you just continue to be productive and I used to always say that I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of prison but as long as I'm here I want to be the most productive person that I can be that I want to be the same person that if they let me out tomorrow I want to be that same person today so that was my motivation and um, inspiration to continue to keep you know, being me because, again, this is who I had become. This wasn't who I was pretending to be. So if I had stayed in that goal another 20 years, I would have been obviously disappointed, but I would have continued to do what you saw. I would have continued to build. I would continue to pour into the lives of other men. I would have continued to be as productive as possible, you know, Uh, uh, know, I always had the mindset that I wanted to uh, grow wherever I was planted at. And unfortunately, you know, I planted myself due to my, Actions in Angola, so I said, "Okay, well, this this is where I'm going to grow at. However, God, you know, chooses, to know, to use me, then so be it."
0: Tell me about Malachi
1: dads. Hmm. So, uh, in 2007, mind you, I I just come out of the out of the sales of like a a, pro, a year prior, so I'm fresh out of the sales. Uh, I'm on fire for Christ. You know um I want to make a difference in in you know in, in the environment, but I don't necessarily know how, but I remember you know all the conversations I had had over the years in the sales The guys come out for the hours you know uh next to guys you know uh in the in the cafeteria and, and and playing ball and so on and so forth uh I came to realization that although we all came from different you know, economic, socioeconomic backgrounds and different race and different religions that we all desire. One thing, the common denominator link is all together. We all wanted to be better fathers. We all wanted more for our children than what we had. We wanted more for them than what we currently were. We didn't want them to make the same mistakes. and so that was just a reoccurring theme that you constantly heard, you know, from all the men. So I just had this idea. Say, man, how about if I start like this therapeutic group where men could come and talk about their strength and weaknesses as a father? Because even though we're still in prison, we still have the ability to impact our kids' lives through, you know, writing letters, through phone conversations, to still just being a good example and knowing that we're pouring, planting good seeds. So uh, I went to the administration. I told them about the idea. Um, the Awana program. It was the biggest kids ministry in, um, in the world. You know, I wrote them and told them about the idea that I wanted. And then I wanted to make it a faith-based therapeutic guilt. You know, the same way God had, had showed me the truth of who he was and the same way he sonned me. I said, like, this is the perspective that we have to address our kids with that same love that God gives us, the love that we have to be uh, reflective of our lives with our children. So I, I got with Awana we well, felt like it was a great idea. We started with forty men, took them through a year long faith based curriculum about fatherhood, uh, and to date, uh, like fourteen years later, Malachi Dances in two hundred and fifty eight prisons across the world. Uh, the curriculums have been translated in like eight or nine different languages, and you know I I want Angola. We had about 1,500 guys who graduated from the program. But if you look at it worldwide, I think it's well over 10,000 guys, the you know, men who've been through the Malachi Dad program, you know, so I'm always getting, you know, letters from people, you know, when I was in prison from around the country, just telling them how much, you know, I impacted their lives through the ministry that I started and so on and so forth. So that was real gratifying to know that I was, you know, from my, you know, prison domitor that I was affecting lives all around the world. You know, some consciously, some unconsciously.
0: Mm-hmm. This is an audio podcast, and I may put some of this video up later on, uh, but so people can't see this. But you got a lot of trophies behind you. Mm-hmm. A lot of <laughs> trophies. Can you talk about some of the fun you had uh, at Angola?
1: Well, just kind of piggybacking on Malachi dance. So sports was always a big part of the social landscape of Angola. You know, uh it was football, there was baseball, it was basketball, because again, recreation was our therapeutic way of relieving stress and you know, and all the guys who and they feeble mind thought that they could have made it to the NBA and NFL. This was their time to prove it. <laughs> So sports was always big. So uh I just got the idea and said okay how can I you know intertwine ministry with sports. So I started the Malachi dad softball team. It was an extension of the ministry but now this was going to be our outreach ministry tool. This is how we were going to go across the yard, you know, and uh talk about uh biblical fatherhood while playing baseball. And it just so happened that the team that I assembled was a pretty good team. You know, so I said, I want to change the whole culture, what, you know, um, sports look like in Angola. You know, so we're not cursing on this team. You know, we got um, everybody who go who's on the team has to go through the ministry, has to go through the year long curriculum. So. Before the games, you know, we want to do five minute devotionals with the other team. Anyone who'd be willing to come, you know, be a part of the devotion, we would spread it out. We would pray before, um, before every game with the team, and we just try to exemplify good character with the team. And I always said that because it's a ministry, I let, you know, I wanted to be more about character than athletes. You know, you can be a bad athlete with good character, you can be on my team, but if you're great athlete with bad character, then you're defeating the purpose and being a part of this, this ministry. So, you know, guys bought into it like wildfire. And it's crazy because even in bad environments, uh, it's like everybody just looking for somebody to, to make a difference. Somebody to be the first one to step up and say, let's change. Let's change how we do things around here. You'd be surprised at how uh, things have changed. So we started the team. we extremely extremely... Um, Good team, um, extremely well-disciplined. We were always more disciplined than other teams. We were better coached, better, uh, more disciplined. Uh, and I worked hard because I was so proud of, of our team. And we ended up winning 10 straight championships. That was the first time unheard of in of history. That, because you can't keep a team together because, you know, people get locked up all the time and all the different administrative things. So you can't keep – it's like NFL. You know, you might have a good team for two years, but here come free agency and so on and so forth. So I had the same idea like a recruiter. I, you know, I kind of recruited players. I said, "Hey, you want to be a part of this dynasty we got over here?" And, and everybody wanted to be a part of it. And I was like, "Okay, so here's here's what it's going to take. This is what I'm going to require of you if you want to be a part of." It. So we went ten straight championship. We won four uh, Department of Correction championship, and that's when we go out. Uh, across the state and have tournaments with all the other prisons across the uh, off the state. So four years in a row, you know, we we only played four years and we won four years. So uh, all these trophies and, and and what you see hanging up on the wall and all the jerseys, and like you know, this is me, you know, just kind of always being able to acknowledge, you know, the success we had with the team and knowing that we did it all in the glory of God, you know. So and, that and- was just so awesome for me.
0: And you were the you were the coach?
1: The first two years I was I was I played. But me and the, the guy who I allowed to be the coach because it was my team, so I was like the owner, but yet a player. But he wasn't necessarily buying into my vision, you know? And um uh, so Kind of part of ways with him. So for the last eight years, you know, I was a coach and I was able to see it. And I was the coach, the owner, the general, general manager, manager, the recruiter, you know, I was everything. <laughs> so, but again, I had the vision. So I wanted guys to come in, you know, and, and even in my absence, you know, things continually just moved on. You know, it was times that I wasn't there and I would always, you know, purposely put somebody, you know, I had a young guy named, uh, we call him BG. But he, he was definitely had the potential to be a Major League Baseball prostate. Extremely uh, long, uh, uh, strong arm. He was fast. He was, you know, he could hit. He was he a was total package. You know, so he was light years ahead of everybody else around him. But he, he was undisciplined. Uh, he didn't understand the value of being a leader. He just felt like because he was the best player that he could do what he wanted. He could say what he wanted and get away with it. And I remember, you know, we just kind of wrestling with him and trying to rein him in and trying to give him more of a leadership role. He did something and I um uh that caused me to suspend him. We were going into the playoffs. Now mind you, mind you, what would uh uh Andy Reid do if, if he suspended Patrick Mahomes? going into the Super Bowl, what the fan base Right, right. Like, the oh, fan base, the mind. media,
0: <laughs> right. everybody would be going nuts. You, They'd be yeah. calling for Andy Reid's head. <laughs>
1: They'd be calling for his head. So I knew that we were going into the championship series, and I said, okay, I got to suspend him because I have to set a standard, a standard that has always been, and that I can't bend for this particular player because if I've been for him, then all the respect that I've gained throughout the years for the other players, you know, it's going to be questionable.
0: You sound so like said, okay. You sound like Bruce Arians. So Bruce Arians, <laughs> that, I'm telling you, BA, I, I played for him in, in Arizona. And when I say he would cuss out Larry Fitzgerald, cuss out Ty Matthew, Patrick Peterson, the best players mm-hmm. to prove a point, to set mm-hmm. a standard. So so go ahead, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I ended up um, suspending them for two games in a uh, in a best out of five series. So had we lost those two games, we'd have been you know behind an eight ball, down two, and got to win three in a row. We just happened to win both of those games. He came back in, played the uh, the last game, and we swept the other team before we went on to play in the, in the, um, uh, in the Department of Correction Championship. But afterwards, he came to me and he said, you know what, man, I'm a better player. I'm a better player and a better person because of you. So he was such a phenomenal talent that I would always tell people that, you know, I'm not trying to make him a better player because he already better than me. It's not much I can tell him. I'm trying to make him a leader. I'm trying to show him what it is to be, you know, the captain of a team and what that entails and so on and so forth. And I remember the day I left the prison, he walked up to me and he shook my hand. So we had our little moment. He like, coach, I'll never forget you. He said, man, I'm a better person and a better man and a better leader because of you. And that's all I ever wanted. So that was more, that was technically more gratifying to me than the 10 championships that we had won because the one thing I wanted to do with the one person, I did, and and I know I made a difference in his life. Hmm.
0: You know, Bozer, you made a difference in my life during my time in Angola, whether 16, 17 and 18, I believe it was those three years, just me able to see and experience. And, you know, I never been to a prison before, um, but I actually saw a place where people had been reformed, people had been changed, people had been rehabilitated. And had been made new. And in, all, in a lot of ways. I saw freedom. Though you were behind bars. And had a life sentence. I saw freedom. A freedom to say. You know what? God is in control of the situation. There are a lot of people outside of prison. That aren't incarcerated. That are as free as a bird. If you will. But mentally. Spiritually. Emotionally. Are, are locked up. And you and some of the men who had, who you were spending time with had been made new. Is it possible for someone who committed a crime, talk about receiving justice and justice and justice. Is it possible for someone who committed a crime, violent or nonviolent, to be made new?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when people change, you know, and I'm speaking from a prison perspective, um, some people change when they perceive to the change based, you know, on the sin that I'll change my life and I'll do everything that's necessary because I'm expecting something in return. I'm expecting possibly to pay my jacket for the pardon board or the parole board and so on and so forth. So, the change on the surface looks real, but it's fraudulent because it's not from the heart. And that person has the potential to get right out of prison and come right back because there was no inward change. There was no uh, breaking of the heart. You know, there was nothing internal going on with him. And then you got other guys who, who came to the realization that, you know, I'm gonna die in prison based on a multitude of different you know, factors. Everybody's situation is different. You know, but some guys have accepted that reality and it's a harsh reality to accept. But through that relationship with Christ, they realize that, you know, this, this is all temporary anyway, this is not my home. I'm just, I'm just here for a minute and I just want to be the best person I can be in this dispensation in time, understanding that, you know, my real life is in heaven with Christ. So absolutely can people change. And I'm going to say this, Sam, that, as productive as you saw us, as productive as you thought that I was, and I know that I was, man, every day was a struggle, you know, that we had to deal with because although we understood our identity in Christ, it's still a struggle. It doesn't mean that, you know, hard times won't not gonna come. It's not, it doesn't mean that, you know, you're not gonna have your mother die while you're there and you have to deal with that. It doesn't mean that you know, that you won't have friends abandoning you and and, and children you disconnected with and things of that nature. So every day is a conscious choice that we have to make to redefine our identity, to make certain, you know, hey, I know who I am in Christ. And despite the situation, despite the circumstances, I know who I am in Christ. And that's my motivation to continue to, to be. I remember, like, on the tail end of my incarceration once, I had made the clemency board. You know, there was a process when you're going for a clemency, you have to go before the clemency board first. And I was granted clemency. So now I have to get the governor's signature. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that I'll get it. There's a lot of guys that the governor will either say no to, or he'll just leave and it'll just sit there, you know, and he got to restart the process. So now it's just this uncertainty of uh, of whether, um I ever get out of prison, knowing that I got this, you know, this pardon recommendation, and I'm the closest I ever been to freedom. You know that I can taste it, that I can see it. It's a reality to me now. So all that that, that feeling that I told you that I had, it was it, I saw it now. I can explain it. I it, it looked tangible, but you know, Sam, I still had to, you know, uh, uh, pray that prayer like the father did, and and and, uh, and Mark, you know, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Because the devil still would try to creep in and say, that, that was all a facade. Even though you got that recommendation, you're not going anywhere. Look at that guy right here. He'd have had three recommendations from three different governors. And so, so every day I had to tell the Lord, man, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me get to a place where I can be comfortable in what you've shown me, what you've told me to the point where, you know, even if it doesn't happen again, I'm comfortable in who you are and who you made me to be. So again, people see the the productivity of Angola and don't realize. And they always say, "Man, y'all so free." I had some of the NFL athletes, you know, Steve. That's my that's my brother. You know, he always said the first time he came to Angola, he said, "Man, I saw freedom in you guys that I that I never saw before." And again, the reality is that y'all leave, we right back. And you know, we jubilant in that moment. Because, you know, it's a new for us. we run all these, these athletes and so on and so forth. And we got to go back to that place of solitude, you know, and, and, and sometimes despair. We got to continually motivate and inspire ourselves. You know what i saying? Mean, this is not all for nothing. That, you know, God got a bigger purpose and a plan for us. We just got to continue to persevere.
0: So I'll end here. What's next for you? What's next? You spent 27 years behind bars, seven years essentially in solitude, but you have dreams for a better future. What's next?
1: I was discussed this morning on the phone with a pastor and I told him that um, right now, trans- my transition is probably at the most, um, I'm not going to say the height of uncertainty, but okay, just the the honeymoon of knowing that I'm out of prison is over for me now. Every day now, Sam, don't get me wrong, every day I have this reflective moment as I'm taking my morning walks and I'm seeing, you know, uh, you know, the, the wind blowing the leaves and I'm seeing the trees and these people pass by, and I'm like thankful for God, because I'm like, man. Just imagine where I was a year ago, so much uncertainty of not knowing if I would ever be here. And just to be able to see the tangible manifestations of God and his faithfulness is is, is awesome for me. So I don't think I'll never not forget that every day I think I have some reflective moment of what the last 27 years of my life was. Uh, However, now I'm like, like you just said, God, what's next? No, I know that you have something mighty in store for me. So now it's about, do I wait on an opportunity to come? Do I create an opportunity? Right now my prayer is that God is gonna continue to give me vision where I can be impactful to some capacity. You know, me and my wife have an organization, a nonprofit called The Beloved Community, and it's um, an acronym for the bridge to enhance the lives of offenders and victims through education and dialogue. Idealistic listen, for me, I want to be able to get to a point where we could actually fund our nonprofit to the point where I can draw my salary out of it because I really want to get on the ground with the reform movement here in Louisiana. I really want to create a restorative justice type of atmosphere where men can have opportunity to talk with their victims and men can have an opportunity to apologize and heal. You know, and victims can have the opportunity, to, you know, to move forward. Knowing that they had this dialogue, I want to go back into prison with some of the curriculums and programs that I started while in prison, and continue to work uh, with those programs and even pr- spread those programs throughout the state. You know, so uh, that's where my heart is, and that's why I feel like uh, God is leading me to. That's why I've been the most effective at, you know, to date, and I'm just hoping and praying that that's the direction that he continues to take me in
0: mm.
1: Be a blessing to the other men. You know, I left a lot of good guys behind, a lot of guys who you know uh is equally deserving and in some cases more deserving than I am and had this opportunity, and they may never get it. So my prayer is that God would just use me to the point where I can grab as many of my brothers out as i as, as possible, and we can build you know something unique within our nonprofit where I can begin to, you know, um, um, employ these formerly incarcerated guys with these seminary degrees and, you know, and, and, and start trying to affect our community from the bottom up.
0: Yeah. I was talking with, uh, a friend earlier and he was talking about how it's easy to build yourself up, but there's a bigger picture, like a kingdom picture. What if you could build other people up as well? So you're not going up alone. You're bringing in uh, a bunch of people with you, a group of people with you. It sounds like that's what you're trying to do um, right now. So Bowser, I appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining the Athletes for Justice podcast, man. I love you, brother.
1: Hey, man. Thank you, brother. Be blessed.
0: I don't know about y'all, but I am loving every single one of these conversations We just sat down with Bozier. He got his nickname. I know I didn't mention it in there, but he he got it because he's from Bozier City, Louisiana. And he talked about the idea of restorative justice versus retributive justice from a man who spent 27 years inside the most dangerous, the bloodiest prison in the United States. What does it mean to restore? What does it mean to be made new? Is it even possible we asked him Is it even possible to to be made new? And he said, yes, of course it is. What a conversation. Thank you all so much for joining me on the Athletes for Justice podcast. Make sure to, to subscribe to this podcast, but more than anything, share it with your friends. Share this podcast with your friends, with your family. Share it on social media. The goal is that more and more people would hear about these messages, would hear about these stories and that we all would be changed. My goal is that you would experience change from listening to this podcast. So thank you. I can't wait for the next episode and I love y'all. Peace.